Section 18 of The Idea of Progress by J. B. Berry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 14. Currents of Thought in France After the Revolution. 1. The failure of the revolution to fulfill the visionary hopes which had dazzled France for a brief period, a failure intensified by the horrors that had attended the experiment, was followed by a reaction against the philosophical doctrines and tendencies which had inspired its leaders. Forces which the 18th century had underrated or endeavored to suppress emerged in a new shape, and it seemed for a while as if the new century might definitely turn its back on its predecessor. There was an intellectual rehabilitation of Catholicism, which will always be associated with the names of four thinkers of exceptional talent, Chateaubriand, de Mestre, Bonald, and Lamennais. But the outstanding fame of these great reactionaries must not mislead us into exaggerating the reach of this reaction. The spirit and tendencies of the past century still persisted in the circles which were most permanently influential. Many eminent savants who had been imbued with the ideas of Condillac and Helvetius, and had taken part in the revolution and survived it, were active under the empire and the restored monarchy, still true to the spirit of their masters, and commanding influence by the value of their scientific work. M. Picavet's laborious researches into the activities of this school of thinkers has helped us to understand the transition from the age of Condorcet to the age of Comte. The two central figures are Cabanis, the friend of Condorcet, and Destut de Tracy. M. Picavet has grouped around them, along with many obscurer names, the great scientific men of the time, like Laplace, Bichat, Lamarck, as all in the direct line of 18th century thought. Ideologists, he calls them. Footnote. Ideology is now sometimes used to convey a criticism, for instance, to contrast the methods of Lamarck with those of Darwin. End of footnote. Ideology, the science of ideas, was the word invented by de Tracy to distinguish the investigation of thought in accordance with the methods of Locke and Condillac from old-fashioned metaphysics. The guiding principle of the ideologists was to apply reason to observed facts and eschew a priori deductions. Thinkers of this school had an influential organ, the Descartes philosophique, of which J. B. Say, the economist, was one of the founders in 1794. The institut, which had been established by the convention, was crowded with ideologists, and may be said to have continued the work of the encyclopedia. Footnote. The members of the second class of the institut, that of moral and political science, were so predominantly ideological that the distrust of Napoleon was excited, and he abolished it in 1803, distributing its members among the other classes. End of footnote. These men had a firm faith in the indefinite progress of knowledge, general enlightenment, and social reason. 2. Thus the ideas of the sophists of the age of Voltaire were alive in the speculative world, notwithstanding political, religious, and philosophical reaction. But their limitations were to be transcended, and account taken of facts and aspects which their philosophy had ignored or minimized. The value of the reactionary movement lay in pressing these facts and aspects on the attention in reopening chambers of the human spirit which the age of Voltaire had locked and sealed. The idea of progress was particularly concerned in the general change of attitude, intellectual and emotional, towards the Middle Ages. A fresh interest in the great age of the Church was a natural part of the religious revival, but extended far beyond the circle of ardent Catholics. It was a characteristic feature, as everyone knows, of the Romantic movement. 
It did not affect only creative literature. It occupied speculative thinkers and stimulated historians. For Guizot, Michelet, and Auguste Comte, as well as for Chateaubriand and Victor Hugo, the Middle Ages have a significance which Frenchmen of the previous generation could hardly have comprehended. We saw how that period had embarrassed the first pioneers who attempted to trace the course of civilization as a progressive movement, how lightly they passed over it, how unconvincingly they explained it away. At the beginning of the 19th century, the medieval question was posed in such a way that anyone who undertook to develop the doctrine of progress would have to explore it more seriously. Madame de Stael saw this when she wrote her book on Literature Considered in Its Relation to Social Institutions, 1801. She was then under the influence of Condorcet and an ardent believer in perfectibility, and the work is an attempt to extend this theory, which she testifies was falling into discredit, to the realm of literature. She saw that, if man regressed instead of progressing for ten centuries, the case for progress was gravely compromised, and she sought to show that the Middle Ages contributed to the development of the intellectual faculties and to the expansion of civilization, and that the Christian religion was an indispensable agent. This contention that progress was uninterrupted is an advance on Condorcet and an anticipation of Saint-Simon and Comte. A more eloquent and persuasive voice was raised in the following year from the ranks of reaction. Chateaubriand's Génie du Christianisme appeared in 1802 amidst the ruins of our temples, as the author afterwards said, when France was issuing from the chaos of her revolution. It was a declaration of war against the spirit of the 18th century, which had treated Christianity as a barbarous system whose fall was demanded in the name of progress. But it was much more than polemic. Chateaubriand arrayed arguments in support of orthodox dogmas, original sin, primitive degeneration, and the rest. But the appeal of the book did not lie in its logic, it lay in the appreciation of Christianity from a new point of view. He approached it in the spirit of an artist, as an aesthete, not as a philosopher, and so far as he proved anything, he proved that Christianity is valuable because it is beautiful, not because it is true. He aimed at showing that it can, quote, enchanter l'âme aussi divinement que les dieux de Virgile et d'Homère, close quote. He might call to his help the fathers of the church, but it was on Dante, Milton, Racine that his case was really based. The book is an apologia, from the aesthetic standpoint of the Romantic school. Quote, Dieu ne défend pas les routes fleuries quand elles servent à revenir à lui. It was a matter of course that the defender of original sin should reject the doctrine of perfectibility. When man attains the highest point of civilization, wrote Chateaubriand in the vein of Rousseau, quote, he is on the lowest stair of morality. If he is free, he is rude. By civilizing his manners, he forges himself chains. His heart profits at the expense of his head, his head at the expense of his heart. Close quote. And, apart from considerations of Christian doctrine, the question of progress had little interest for the Romantic school. Victor Hugo, in the famous preface to his Cromwell, 1827, where he went more deeply than Chateaubriand into the contrasts between ancient and modern art, revived the old likeness of mankind to an individual man, and declared that classical antiquity was the time of its virility, and that we are now spectators of its imposing old age. From other points of view, powerful intellects were reverting to the Middle Ages, and eager to blot out the whole development of modern society since the Reformation as the encyclopedic philosophers had wished to blot out the Middle Ages. The idea of Bonal, de Mestre, and Lamennais was a sacerdotal government of the world, 
and the English constitution was hardly less offensive to their minds than the revolution which Demestre denounced as satanic. Advocates as they were of the dead system of theocracy, they contributed, however, to the advance of thought, not only by forcing medieval institutions on the notice of the world, but also by their perception that society had been treated in the eighteenth century in too mechanical a way, that institutions grow, that the conception of individual men divested of their life in society is a misleading abstraction. They put this in extravagant and untenable forms, but there was a large measure of truth in their criticism, which did its part in helping the nineteenth century to revise and transcend the results of eighteenth-century speculation. In this reactionary literature we can see the struggle of the doctrine of providence, declining before the doctrine of progress, to gain the upper hand again. Chateaubriand, Bonal, Demestre, Lamennais firmly held the dogma of an original golden age and the degradation of man, and denounced the whole trend of progressive thought from Bacon to Condorcet. These writers were unconsciously helping Condorcet's doctrine to assume a new and less questionable shape. 3. Along with the discovery of the Middle Ages came the discovery of German literature. In the intellectual commerce between the two countries in the age of Frederick the Great, France had been exclusively the giver, Germany the recipient. It was due, above all, to Madame de Stael that the tide began to flow the other way. Among the writers of the Napoleonic epoch, Madame de Stael is easily first in critical talent and intellectual breadth. Her study of the revolution showed a more dispassionate appreciation of that convulsion than any of her contemporaries were capable of forming. But her chef-d'oeuvre is her study of Germany, de l'Allemagne, which revealed the existence of a world of art and thought unsuspected by the French public. Within the next twenty years, Herder and Lessing, Kant and Hegel were exerting their influence at Paris. She did in France what Coleridge was doing in England for the knowledge of German thought. Madame de Stael had raised anew the question which had been raised in the seventeenth century and answered in the negative by Voltaire. Is there progress in aesthetic literature? Her early book on literature had clearly defined the issue. She did not propose the thesis that there is any progress or improvement, as some of the moderns had contended in the famous quarrel, in artistic form. Within the limits of their own thought and emotional experience, the ancients achieved perfection of expression, and perfection cannot be surpassed. But as thought progresses, as the sum of ideas increases and society changes, fresh material is supplied to art. There is a new development of sensibility, which enables literary artists to compass new kinds of charm. The génie du christianisme embodied a commentary on her contention more arresting than any she could herself have furnished. Here the reactionary joined hands with the disciple of Condorcet to prove that there is progress in the domain of art. Madame de Stael's masterpiece, Germany, was a further impressive illustration of the thesis that the literature of the modern European nations represents an advance on classical literature, in the sense that it sounds notes which the Greek and Roman masters had not heard, reaches depths which they had not conjectured, unlocks chambers which to them were closed, as a result of the progressive experiences of the human soul. Footnote. We can see the effect of her doctrine in Guizot's remarks, Histoire de la civilisation en Europe, deuxième leçon, where he says of modern literatures that, quote, sous le point de vue de fond, des sentiments et des idées elles sont plus fortes et plus riches than the ancient. On voit que l'âme humaine a été remuée sur un plus grand nombre de points à une plus grande profondeur. Close quote and to this very fact he ascribes their comparative imperfection in form. End of footnote. 
This view is based on the general propositions that all social phenomena closely cohere and that literature is a social phenomenon, from which it follows that if there is a progressive movement in society generally, there is a progressive movement in literature. Her books were true to the theory. They inaugurated the methods of modern criticism, which studies literary works in relation to the social background of their period. 4. France, then, under the Bourbon Restoration, began to seek new light from the obscure profundities of German speculation, which Madame de Stael proclaimed. Herder's ideas were translated by Edgar Quinet, Lessing's education by Eugène Rodriguez. Cousin sat at the feet of Hegel. At the same time, a new master, full of suggestiveness for those who were interested in the philosophy of history, was discovered in Italy. The Scienza Nuova of Vico was translated by Michelet. The book of Vico was now a hundred years old. I did not mention him in his chronological place, because he exercised no immediate influence on the world. His thought was an anachronism in the eighteenth century. It appealed to the nineteenth. He did not announce or conceive any theory of progress, but his speculation, bewildering enough and confused in its exposition, contained principles which seemed predestined to form the basis of such a doctrine. His aim was that of Cabini and the ideologists, to set the study of society on the same basis of certitude which had been secured for the study of nature through the work of Descartes and Newton. His fundamental idea was that the explanation of the history of societies is to be found in the human mind. The world at first is felt rather than thought. This is the condition of savages in the state of nature who have no political organization. The second mental state is imaginative knowledge, poetical wisdom. To this corresponds the higher barbarism of the heroic age. Finally comes conceptual knowledge, and with it the age of civilization. These are the three stages through which every society passes, and each of these types determines law, institutions, language, literature, and the characters of men. Vico's strenuous researches in the study of Homer and early Roman history were undertaken in order to get at the point of view of the heroic age. He insisted that it could not be understood unless we transcended our own abstract ways of thinking and looked at the world with primitive eyes by a forced effort of imagination. He was convinced that history had been vitiated by the habit of ignoring psychological differences, by the failure to recapture the ancient point of view. Here he was far in advance of his own times. Concentrating his attention above all on Roman antiquity, he adopted, not altogether advantageously for his system, the revolutions of Roman history as the typical rule of social development. The succession of aristocracy, for the early kingship of Rome and Homeric royalty are merely forms of aristocracy in Vico's view, democracy and monarchy is the necessary sequence of political governments. Monarchy, the Roman Empire, corresponds to the highest form of civilization. What happens when this is reached? Society declines into an anarchical state of nature, from which it again passes into a higher barbarism or heroic age to be followed once more by civilization. The dissolution of the Roman Empire and the barbarian invasions are followed by the Middle Ages, in which Dante plays the part of Homer, and the modern period with its strong monarchies corresponds to the Roman Empire. This is Vico's principle of reflux. If the theory were sound, it would mean that the civilization of his day must again relapse into barbarism and the cycle begin again. He did not himself state this conclusion directly or venture on any prediction. It is obvious how readily his doctrine could be adapted to the conception of progress as a spiral movement. Evidently, the corresponding periods in his cycles are not identical or really homogeneous. 
whatever points of likeness may be discovered between early greek or roman and medieval societies the points of unlikeness are still more numerous and manifest modern civilization differs in fundamental and far-reaching ways from greek and roman it is absurd to pretend that the general movement brings man back again and again to the point from which he started and therefore if there is any value in vico's reflux it can only mean that the movement of society may be regarded as a spiral ascent so that each stage of an upward progress corresponds in certain general aspects to a stage which has already been traversed this correspondence being due to the psychical nature of man a conception of this kind could not be appreciated in vico's day or by the next generation the scienza nuova lay in montesquieu's library and he made no use of it but it was natural that it should arouse interest in france at a time when the new idealistic philosophies of germany were attracting attention and when frenchmen of the ideological school were seeking like vico himself a synthetic principle to explain social phenomena different though vico was in his point of departure as in his methods from the german idealists his speculations nevertheless had something in common with theirs both alike explained history by the nature of mind which necessarily determined the stages of the process vico as little as fichte or hegel took eudaimonic considerations into account the difference was that the german thinkers sought their principle in logic and applied it a priori while vico sought his in concrete psychology and engaged in laborious research to establish it a posteriori by the actual data of history but both speculations suggested that the course of human development corresponds to the fundamental character of mental processes and is not diverted either by providential intervention or by free acts of human will five these foreign influences cooperated in determining the tendencies of french speculation in the period of the restored monarchy whereby the idea of progress was placed on new basements and became the headstone of new religions before we consider the founders of sects we may glance briefly at the views of some eminent savants who had gained the ear of the public before the july revolution geoffroy cousin and guizot cousin the chief luminary in the sphere of pure philosophy in france in the first half of the nineteenth century drew his inspiration from germany he was professedly an eclectic but in the main his philosophy was hegelian he might endow god with consciousness and speak of providence but he regarded the world process as a necessary evolution of thought and he saw not in religion but in philosophy the highest expression of civilization in eighteen twenty eight he delivered a course of lectures on the philosophy of history he divided history into three periods each governed by a master idea the first by the idea of the infinite the orient the second by that of the finite classical antiquity the third by that of the relation of finite to infinite the modern age as with hegel the future is ignored progress is confined within a closed system the highest circle has already been reached as an opponent of the ideologists and the sensational philosophy on which they founded their speculations cousin appealed to the orthodox and all those to whom voltairianism was an accursed thing and for a generation he exercised a considerable influence but his work and this is the important point for us helped to diffuse the idea which the ideologists were diffusing on very different lines that human history has been a progressive development progressive development was also the theme of geoffroy in his slight but suggestive introduction to the philosophy of history eighteen twenty five in which he posed the same problem which as we shall see saint-simon and comte were simultaneously attempting to solve he had not fallen under the glamour of german idealism 
and his results have more affinity with Vico's than with Hegel's. He begins with some simple considerations which conduct to the doubtful conclusion that all the historical changes in man's condition are due to the operation of his intelligence. The historian's business is to trace the succession of the actual changes. The business of the philosopher of history is to trace the succession of ideas and study the correspondence between the two developments. This is the true philosophy of history. The glory of our age is to understand it. Now it is admitted today, he says, that the human intelligence obeys invariable laws, so that a further problem remains. The actual succession of ideas has to be deduced from these necessary laws. When that deduction is effected, a long time hence, history will disappear. It will be merged in science. Geoffroy then presented the world with what he calls the fatality of intellectual development, to take the place of providence or destiny. It is a fatality, he is careful to explain, which, so far from compromising, presupposes individual liberty. For it is not like the fatality of sensual impulse which guides the brute creation. What it implies is this. If a thousand men have the same idea of what is good, this idea will govern their conduct in spite of their passions, because, being reasonable and free, they are not blindly submissive to passion, but can deliberate and choose. This explanation of history as a necessary development of society corresponding to a necessary succession of ideas differs in two important points from the explanations of Hegel and Cousin. The succession of ideas is not conceived as a transcendent logic, but is determined by the laws of the human mind and belongs to the domain of psychology. Here Geoffroy is on the same ground as Vico. In the second place, it is not a closed system. Room remains for an indefinite development in the future. 6. While Cousin was discoursing on philosophy at Paris in the days of the last Bourbon king, Guizot was drawing crowded audiences to his lectures on the history of European civilization, and the keynote of these lectures was progress. He approached it with a fresh mind, unencumbered with any of the philosophical theories which had attended and helped its growth. Civilization, he said, is the supreme fact so far as man is concerned the fact par excellence, the general and definite fact in which all other facts merge. And civilization means progress or development. The word, quote, awakens when it is pronounced the idea of a people which is in motion, not to change its place, but to change its state, a people whose condition is expanding and improving. The idea of progress, development, seems to me to be the fundamental idea contained in the word civilization, close quote. There we have the most important positive idea of 18th century speculation, standing forth detached and independent, no longer bound to a system. Fifty years before, no one would have dreamed of defining civilization like that, and counting on the immediate acquiescence of his audience. But progress has to be defined. It does not merely imply the improvement of social relations and public well-being. France in the 17th and 18th centuries was behind Holland and England in the sum and distribution of well-being among individuals, and yet she can claim that she was the most civilized country in those ages. The reason is that civilization also implies the development of the individual life, of men's private faculties, sentiments, and ideas. The progress of man, therefore, includes both these developments. But they are intimately connected. We may observe how moral reformers generally recommend their proposals by promising social amelioration as a result, and that progressive politicians maintain that the progress of society necessarily induces moral improvement. The connection may not always be apparent, 
and at different times one or other kind of progress predominates. But one is followed by the other ultimately, though it may be after a long interval, for la providence a ses aises dans le temps. The rise of Christianity was one of the crises of civilization, yet it did not in its early stages aim at any improvement of social conditions. It did not attack the great injustices which were wrought in the world. It meant a great crisis because it changed the beliefs and sentiments of individuals. Social effects came afterwards. The civilization of modern Europe has grown through a period of fifteen centuries and is still progressing. The rate of progress has been slower than that of Greek civilization, but on the other hand it has been continuous, uninterrupted, and we can see the vista of an immense career. The effects of Guizot's doctrine in propagating the idea of progress were all the greater for its divorce from philosophical theory. He did not touch perplexing questions like fatality or discuss the general plan of the world. He did not attempt to rise above common sense, and he did not essay any premature scheme of the universal history of man. His masterly survey of the social history of Europe exhibited progressive movement as a fact, in a period in which to the thinkers of the 18th century it had been almost invisible. This, of course, was far from proving that progress is the key to the history of the world and human destinies. The equation of civilization with progress remains an assumption. For the question at once arises, can civilization reach a state of equilibrium from which no further advance is possible, and if it can, does it cease to be civilization? Is Chinese civilization miscalled, or has there been here too a progressive movement all the time, however slow? Such questions were not raised by Guizot but his view of history was effective in helping to establish the association of the two ideas of civilization and progress, which today is taken for granted as evidently true. 7. The views of these eminent thinkers, Cousin, Jouffroy, and Guizot, show that, quite apart from the doctrines of ideologists and of the positivists, Saint-Simon and Comte, of whom I have still to speak, there was a common trend in French thought in the Restoration period towards the conception of history as a progressive movement. Perhaps there is no better illustration of the infectiousness of this conception than in the historical studies which Chateaubriand gave to the world in 1831. He had learned much, from books as well as from politics, since he wrote The Genius of Christianity. He had gained some acquaintance with German philosophy and with Vico, and in this work of his advanced age, he accepts the idea of progress so far as it could be accepted by an orthodox son of the church. He believes that the advance of knowledge will lead to social progress, and that society, if it seems sometimes to move backward, is always really moving forward. Bossuet, for whom he had no word of criticism thirty years before, he now convicts of an imposing error. That great man, he writes, quote, has confined historical events in a circle as rigorous as his genius. He has imprisoned them in an inflexible Christianity, a terrible hoop in which the human race would turn in a sort of eternity without progress or improvement. The admission from such a quarter shows eloquently how the wind was setting. The notions of development and continuity which were to control all departments of historical study in the later 19th century were at the same time being independently promoted by the young historical school in Germany which is associated with the names of Eichhorn, Savigny, and Niebuhr. Their view that laws and institutions are a natural growth or the expression of a people's mind represents another departure from the ideas of the 18th century. It was a repudiation of that universal reason which desired to reform the world and its peoples indiscriminately without taking any account of their national histories. End of section 18